2 Peter 1, starting at verse 16. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So far, let us pray. Lord God, as we now turn to your word and as we just sung, Lord, we pray that the word would be planted deep within. Lord, we pray that you would overcome unbelief and that you would draw us to you. Holy God, we pray. Give Give me wisdom to speak your word faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, this morning we are going to be looking at verse 19. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. I have three points to bring out from this particular verse. They are, first of all, the word of certainty, number two, the word of light, and number three, the word of eternity. So the word of certainty, the word of light, and the word of eternity. And first of all, the word of certainty. Thank you, JP. So first of all, the first phrase we see here, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. Notice the word also, because also is linking us back to what we talked about in our last message. Last time we saw that Peter addresses a challenge that was given to him and to the apostles with respect to the message that they were teaching, because they were accused of making this up to get a following. And the thing they particularly were challenged that they made up was the idea that Jesus is coming back in glory to judge the living and the dead, and that there will be a time of judgment and a time in which his saints will be brought to be with him. And so they said, you're making this up. And do you remember how Peter answers the charge? Peter brings up the event of the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus was transfigured in front of them and his glory radiated, and the highest for, uh, source of authority spoke. God himself said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And so he talks about that as bona fide evidence that the Lord will return in glory. And he says, I'm not making this stuff up. I was there, he says. And he talks about the twofold witness, the ear witness and the eye witness. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. Peter, James, and John were there. Moses was there. Elijah was there. And they saw and they heard these things. So today we're going to see that Peter's not done. He's going to employ a second word, a second witness to establish beyond doubt that Jesus is coming back. Specifically, he now employs 
the word itself, the scriptures. He specifically, if you notice in the text, calls it the word of prophecy, the prophetic word. Now, while the prophetic word, that phrase, could be narrowed down to the prophecies that specifically talk about the day of the Lord, the end time day, it probably means, as the rabbis saw this phrase, the entire swath of the Old Testament canon, the Old Testament scriptures. And so we are talking here about the word, but particularly the Old Testament that Peter would be referring to. We will see later at the end of our study of Second Peter that Peter already starts to see the New Testament canon taking shape because he talks about Paul's letters as graphe, which means scriptures. And so there's already this sense of New Testament canon taking place. But for now, we'll limit ourselves to the, the word of prophecy in the Old Testament. Notice what he says. We have also, we have this scripture. Notice which group he's talking about. We, we, it's the same group as in verse 16. Remember, we saw that. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables. The same group is saying, he's saying here, we, that is faithful preachers and evangelists, have the prophetic word to validate the return of Jesus Christ. And he says, we have it. We're not trying to reconstruct the scriptures. We're not trying to rediscover what the word of God is. It is the very present possession of the church. This word in the Greek is in the continual tense. We continually, abidingly have the word of God for the church to be guided and to speak into this word world the word of God. And that is why we're here this morning, to hear these words from God himself. Notice also, he says, and this is where it gets a little bit confusing, we have a more sure word of prophecy. The words more sure are comparative. They're comparing to something else. And so the question is, what is a more sure prophetic word? The word to be sure is the same word we saw in verse 10 when it says, make your calling and election sure. The idea of cementing it, making it fast. So what... Does it mean to make the prophetic word more sure? Is it more sure than the event or the witness, the testimony of the Mount of Transfiguration? Is he saying, yeah, we were there, we witnessed that, but this is even more sure? That wouldn't make sense. Because if you remember that Peter pulled all the stops, as we saw in our last sermon, to validate the highest authority of what took place at the Mount of Transfiguration. So there's no way he would be saying, we have Transfiguration, and we have the Word, and the Word trumps whatever happened there, or even bigger. That makes no sense in the text and in the flow of thought. Others would argue that the prophetic word now is more sure because we are living in the days of fulfillment compared to the times of the prophecies when these things were being predicted. So he's basically saying, we are living in New Testament, New Covenant times, and so therefore, by nature of that, it is more sure. That gets closer, I think, to where we're going, but I still don't think that fully answers the idea of a more sure word of prophecy. So what else do we need to see? 
the reason we need to see something else because we have to narrow our minds down to the very thing that's being challenged. What is being made more sure? The fact that Jesus is coming again. That's in question. And he says that is made more sure now than before. And if we talk about New Testament fulfillment, the problem is he hasn't come back yet. We're still here. So we still have to ask ourselves, well, then how is it made more sure? Remember, he's talking about the Greek word parousia, which is the appearance, the second coming. So where has it been made more sure? It's at the Mount of Transfiguration. That's where. At the Mount of Transfiguration, instead of going against the Mount of Transfiguration or trumping the Mount of Transfiguration event, he's taking that very event and saying that event has made more sure or more certain the reality that the prophets predicted the second coming of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we must interpret the Old Testament prophets with the expectation of his second coming. That's what he's saying, that we must interpret Scripture with that vein in mind. And because of the transfiguration, we must hold fast to that. To put it negatively, the very notion that the second coming of Jesus Christ was not what the prophets taught is absolute nonsense because we have it confirmed in the transfiguration think about this at the transfiguration the written word the prophetic word was applied to the living word the Lord Jesus because do you remember what was quoted there what aspects of the Old Testament did God the Father reference He referenced Psalm 2, Isaiah 42. Behold my servant, behold the son. And he applies the written word to the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, here's a take home out of this. Therefore, if you and I reject the glorious return of Jesus Christ, if you live as though that's not going to happen, it doesn't matter when I'm dying, I'm going six feet under, and that's the end of my existence. If that's the way you think about life, you are rejecting not only the living word, but you are rejecting the living word, written word as well. And to reject both is to reject father and son and to place yourself under wrath. There are teachers in churches today who want to unhitch the Old Testament. Peter does precisely the opposite. He promotes the prophetic word. And so in each and every way, we see the prophets and the apostles come together and bear witness to one joint testimony. He's coming again. You know, when a good friend from a far country promises that they will visit soon, and you know it's a good friend, they're reliable friends, it might be enough from the very fact that you know them and they're reliable people that you will trust their word. They're going to come visit, you know they're coming. But when you get the confirmation email in your inbox and the plane ticket number is forwarded to your inbox, you have even more confidence, and that is what we see happening here today. Dear people, Jesus Christ is certainly coming again. You know what this means? This means increased responsibility. 
you cannot walk away this morning without the gravity of the second coming riveting your mind to the glory of his return. You kidding me? If this is true, it's got to change everything about us. It's got to affect everything. It is the lodestar. It is the fulcrum by which we live. He's coming again. This means living with expectation. You know, all around there's people and things that are drawing you into the vortex of the here and now. It's so easy to live for the moment. Work can become a slave master. You get so focused on work. Recreation can consume you. Oh, what am I doing for the weekend? I live for the weekend. I can't wait. It's Friday. Keeping everything in your house neat and in order can become an idol. Pulling your affections away from God Almighty. Money, cars, fashion, athletics, the acreage. They can seem so valuable, can't they? Until... You compare them to the eternal, and then suddenly they become quite insignificant, don't they? Your existence here is so transistory, so transistory, so small. James says our life here is a vapor, a vapor. It is here today, gone tomorrow. So if you believe this, What does it demand of you and I? It demands watchfulness. It demands urgency. It demands vigilance. And it compels us to witness the gospel now to the nations. Don't sit on your hands and do nothing. Speak of Jesus and his coming again in glory. And it also compels us to live with hope. Because the kingdoms of this world will not win. The devil has been crushed at the cross of Jesus Christ. And as Paul ends Romans 16, he will soon crush Satan under your feet. He says to the church. Furthermore, tyranny will be brought down. Tyrants will not have the last word. And the abortion mill will one day be destroyed. And justice will be served. All those who walk against life will finally see their verdict come upon them. Cancer will not win. The wheelchair has no part of eternity. Chronic disease will end. Death will be no more. The more sure word of the prophetic kingdom of Christ also means living with purpose. We are seeing more than ever young people living with no purpose, having no goal. And that's why the suicide rate is as high as it is. Because if you have no purpose, if your life today isn't fulfilling you, why not end it? But because he's coming again, you better believe there's purpose. There's much purpose for living. He has made us for himself. We reflect his image. We are going somewhere eternally. What we do matters. Perhaps you've lost sight of this and you forget forget that... God's kingdom is lasting forever. And what you do, here's the thing. What you do for God's kingdom will be forever. That's purposeful. Let good and kindreds go. This mortal life also. God's kingdom is forever. This also means living with confidence. Perhaps you're here this morning and you struggle with the fear of man. 
You worry about what they might think of you. What happens if my co-workers find out I'm a Christian? I'm not going to talk about it. I'll, I'll be quiet. No, no, no. Look up. Look ahead. Look to the lighthouse. We have this more sure word that will condition anything that might cause us to fear man. Because in God, there's no maybes. There's no perhaps. There's no what ifs with God. They are certain. So fear him, the Bible says, who can cast both body and soul into hell. The word of God is most certain, most glorious, most powerful, most beautiful. And it is forever. What he says is true. Which brings me to the second point. The word of light. Because notice what Peter says out of this. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as to a light that shineth in a dark place. A light is a lamp. Now maybe you come to think of the Bible when you hear thy word is a lamp. You think of a modern flashlight. And the problem is that the newest and the best and the brightest flashlights shine up to 1600 lumens and some up to 1000 feet. These are like mega lights, and we see everything ahead for a long ways. But in the mind of the Israeli and in anyone in ancient culture, they were thinking of a pottery lamp. It gave a good light. It was a consistent light because the oil was there, right? But it would be uh, shining ahead of you only so many feet, and you had to tread carefully and slowly in its steady light. And so each step had to be carefully illumined by the lamp that was ahead of you. And so you wouldn't run ahead of what the lamp exposed in a dark place. This means for us that we should not run ahead of the word of God, but rather let the word of God diligently and carefully illumine our every day. Let all of your decisions be conditioned by the light that the word of God exposes in front of you. We're so prone to walk ahead. We're so prone to not counsel the, get the counsel of the word first, but first figure out if my ideas work, then maybe I'll go to the light. No, no, the psalmist says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Notice it says in the text, a light that shines in a dark place. This word for dark is only used here in the entire Greek New Testament. It's rare, obviously. It means dusty, dirty, dim, dark. And so it joins together two concepts. Not only darkness, but filth, dirtiness, aridness. And because of this, some people see the last phrase. I'll just jump ahead. If you look at it, it says when it says the days that are rising in your hearts. And they take this arid, dark dinginess. And they take the, they start arising in your hearts, and they say, certainly what Peter is talking about here is conversion. When somebody comes from the darkness of death and sin into the light of believing in Jesus Christ. But as I've argued earlier, that's not the context here. And so it wouldn't make sense to say that particularly here. It's about the future parousia, the, the coming of Jesus Christ. And so the darkness then is what? It is this present age, this time, the age in which we live. It may be described as dirty and dark. And so Peter says, whereunto you do well to take heed. It's not just a good thing. You notice the words ye do well, kalos in the Greek, to do good. But it's not just a good thing to submit to the word. It is, it's the right thing to do. It's the only right thing to do. 
I'm not just talking about advice here that Peter's giving us. Peter's not just giving you a second opinion on how to live. It's so easy to take pride in our thinking, isn't it? About, I can navigate my life, my times. What's your plan for your future? And you conjure up all kinds of ideas. I've got the answers. I know what I'm doing. Oh, the folly of self-assurance. The arrogance to think that we've got to figure it out. Mere creatures of dust. John Calvin wrote, Without the word, nothing is left for men but darkness. And therefore, he says, take heed. Take heed. You do well to take heed. Heeding is paying close attention. It implies the embrace of what the light shows you and acting upon it. It's no good to just illumine and say, huh, and then still to walk in the darkness. Heeding is taking it serious with a believing heart. Heeding is something that these Christians had already done. And if you're a Christian here this morning, you have already heeded the word in faith, but you must continue to do so. We don't start in the spirit and then end in the flesh. We go on in constancy of his word, and that's why it says as a word that is shining or shineth. It's a continual tense. The word of God doesn't operate on batteries. You ever had that? You had your flashlight out in the dark, and all of a sudden it flickers, and you nail it a few times, and you get a little bit more, and it's over. Not so the word of God. One commentator puts it this way. He says, shining is nothing but the continuity and the intensity of the light. History, world history, if you love history, if you love reading history and understanding where we came from, is replete with examples of the failures of man's wisdom, but also of the permanence of God's wisdom. You remember Voltaire, he says, in a hundred years, Jesus Christ will be rooted out of society. Well, a hundred years later, in his very house, they built a Bible society. There's all these examples where God's word stands. The word shines with clarity. What does sin do? If you take your counsel from people who do not counsel themselves with the word of God, you're going to have shrouded counsel. It will complicate things because it will give you false promises. It's so easy to be tricked by these false promises. We run down the road. It seems smart. The guy's intelligent. He's got his PhD. Surely he's got to be right. Instead of first conditioning our thinking by the word of God, John Frame writes this. He says, Scripture is always clear enough for us to carry out our present responsibilities before God. And so the word of God shineth, giving the contours of life. It shows the greatness and the holiness of God, the misery of sin in our lives, and the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Some practical things we can draw from this heeding. Heed the word in evangelism. Don't be clever and come up with gimmicks to sell the gospel, to try to woo people in with these gimmicks. Proclaim the word in season and out of season. It is not outdated to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's always applicable. Proverbs 6.23 says this, For the commandment is a lamp, 
and the law is a light, and reproofs of instruction are the way of life. If you have lost family members, and many of us do, you might feel hopeless, you might feel powerless, and you might be tempted to think that you have to change their hearts. You tell me where in the word of God that's written. The word calls us not to change hearts, but to be faithful. That's what we're called to do. That's our task. Faithful in praying for that lost loved one. Faithful in speaking the truth to them. Faithful in loving them. Faithful in being kind to them. But to believe, as we are so tempted to do, that I can change their hearts is to tread beyond the light into darkness. 2 Timothy 2 says this, And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patience, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. That's our marching orders. But listen to the rest of it. If God, peradventure, will give them repentance to the acknowledgement of the truth. Use the word to illumine your responsibilities and to illumine what God does. Don't usurp his role. Take comfort in that division. Understand what we have to do and what he does. That's comforting. That's good to know because we're so tempted to want to take his part. Heed the word then also. As you walk in the path of obedience, doing the right thing will not be popular. It will not always feel good. It may hurt very much. It may cause you to lose friendships. It may cause you to be fired from your job. And it can only be done when you believe what the word says. Do you know what draws us away from the idols that tempt us to disobedience? Because that's what idols do. We heard that this morning. What draws us away? And we heard it as well in the, in the earlier time. It is worship. The worship of of God, when we adore him, when we see God for who he is, that draws our hearts and rivets it to holiness. Anything else will draw you to banality, to useless things. And that is why in Psalm 96, 9, it says, Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. For the believer, holiness is attractive. It is the right thing because in Jesus Christ, we have been brought into the blazing center of God's presence by faith. Here's another one. And it's ever so pertinent in our society. Heed the word in counseling. Begin, contain, and finish all counseling, whether it's at Tim Hortons and you have a time of coffee with your friends or in official counseling, whatever. Heed it all with the word of God. Heath Lambert writes this. We are who God says we are. We, what is wrong with us is what God says is wrong with us. There is no solution to our problem and no process of change other than the one God has provided. So counseling must be biblical or it's not good counseling. Heed the word by applying it to all spheres of your life. The kingdom of God is not incidental. It's not a sideshow. 
to the main show of life. The word of God actually says that the kingdom of God and the lordship of Christ is over all things. Herman Bavinck wrote about 100 years ago, he powerfully wrote this, everything within and outside of the church that is enlivened and governed by Christ, who exercises sovereignty over all things, everything that way constitutes and belongs to the kingdom of God. So look, by heeding, look how you can apply the word of God to your work, Understand what it means for your marriage and your relationships, your dating. Subject all your goals of parenting and the methods of parenting to the word of God. If you're in education or going to be in education, and actually we all are because we never stop learning, ground all of the sciences, the arts, and the humanities with the word of God as the anchor by which we understand all of God's creation. Because there's only one that can be rightly called the lamp. Which draws me to our last point, number three. As unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Do you notice the word until? In the Greek, eos means to a point of time and then no more. To a point of time and then no more. He puts a cap on the duration of the word's usefulness until. Now that might sound heretical to you. There's going to be a time when the word will no longer be useful, instructive. Listen carefully because we've got to understand what he's saying here. Until the day dawn. The peculiarity points to a time. A time in history when the morning light first breaks through the darkness. Remember what I said the darkness was, this present age. Day dawn is when the sun first breaks up, right? comes up over the horizon. The light shines through with its blazing power. And without a doubt, when the day dawn is the time of the day of the Lord, it is the time of Jesus' return. The prophetic prophecies coming to consummate fruition. Jesus spoke about this day. He says, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered the nations. It is then, until then, but at that time, that the eternal state will begin. Time will be no more. We will enter into eternity. Now, the word, the day dawn or the day break, is synonymous in this text with the day star coming, the day star arising in your hearts. It's interesting what the Greek word for day star is, phosphorus. We know that element. Phosphorus comes from two Greek words, phos, which means light, and phoros, which means bringer, the light bringer, until the light bringer comes. It's a combination of those two. In the ancient world, if you said phosphorus, everybody knew what you meant, because you meant the day star, which in those times was the planet Venus. That bright light that they would see just before the sun came up, that bright light would be seen. It anticipates the dawn. 
And in the ancient rabbis, they saw the rabbinical tradition saw the morning star as the same as the dawn. They, they conjoined together, not the same thing, but they both speak of the same event. The day star heralds the advent of the new time. And they would say this, the day bringer, the day star, which puts the stars to flight. And thus the two cannot be separated. Who is the day star? Jesus Christ is the day star. He says that of himself, Revelation 22.1. I am the root and offspring of David and the bright and the morning star. The prophets of the Old Testament talked about this time. They anticipated this, linking the light of the star with the breaking in of the everlasting age. Listen to Numbers 24, 17 through 19, prophesying the eternal reign of the morning star. It says this, There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter rule shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab. Remember, those were the enemies they were encamped against at that point. And destroy all the children of Sheth, and Edom shall be his possession. Seir also shall be a possession for his enemies. And Israel shall do valiantly. The people of God shall triumph in the day when the day star arises. Out of Jacob shall come he that shall have what? Dominion. And shall destroy him that remains of the city. That's Numbers. And then prophesying the ingathering of that time. What's going to be gathered in of the time when this day star arises? Isaiah 60, verse 1 and 3, 1 through 3. Arise, shine, for the light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. And then what does it prophesy is going to happen at that time? It says, For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people, but the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And all the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. It will gather in the nations to stand before him. And lastly, Micah 4, verse 2, very famous passage. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness, S-U-N, referring to the S-O-N of Righteousness, Arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth, and grow up as calves of the stall, and ye shall tread down the wicked. And they shall be as ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts, Jehovah Sabaoth, the God of angel armies. So lastly here, as you look at the time of Jesus' return, look what it says, as the days that arise in your hearts. It's interesting, isn't it? It's almost confusing. Because that is the objective event in which everything will be cataclysmically changed. is a cosmic return of Christ. And Peter turns from the cosmic to the subjective, personal, to the internal, in your hearts. Why does he do this? He does this to show that then, at that day, everything within will perfectly correspond to what is without Because if you think about now in this present dark age, without in this world we see light where the gospel advances, but around that light we see darkness, the curse, devil, death, wars, famines, pestilence, deceit. Within, for the believer, we see the light of Jesus Christ as he has brought us to faith. At the same time within, we see the darkness of indwelling sin, as we were maybe annoyed with somebody, got angry unrighteously or treated them in a wrong way. 
But then, in that age, in that time, until, in the time of Christ's return, without, in Jesus' kingdom, there's only going to be light. The light of the sun will be no more, for the glory of God and of the sun will radiate, it says in Revelation 22. There's going to be no more death, no more sin, no more devil. They will be cast into eternal fire. They will be vanquished from our presence. But he takes that, that hope, that external reality, and he moves it inwardly to you and me, dear believer. And he said, not only without, but also within, the day star will purge the last vestigial parts of sin. Everything will be gone, and sin internally also will be no more. You're not going to be tempted to idolatry anymore. You're not going to want to backbite or or steal or lie or do all these different things. It won't even come in your mind. Because God changes us outside and inside. He changes everything. And that is why that word until becomes so important. Because that will be the time when the word the lamp of the word will no longer be needed to guide us. There will be no more need for scripture. The venerable Bede writing in 672, 735, that's when he lived somewhere in that time, AD, many, many years ago, he said this. He says, for indeed, in this world's night, filled with dark temptations, where only with difficulty is anyone found who does not offend. What should we be if we did not have the lamp of the prophetic utterance? Talking about this time. Then he asks this question. But will a lamp always be required? His answer, definitely not. Until the day dawns because then that light of the lamp of the word of God will be eclipsed by the glory of the God who gave us the word and he himself will be among us and we will see his face and his name will be on our foreheads and there shall be no more night we're not there yet are we And so the Puritan John Trapp encourages you and me. He says, as the governor of a ship has his hand on the stern, where does he place his eyes? Steady to the pole star. So should we be steady on Jesus Christ, the day star. Dear people of God, let us valiantly heed the written word today until that day when the living word will eclipse it. Some of you here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as Savior. You don't know what I'm talking about. But within, you know you're broken. You are chasing the wind and you will reap the whirlwind. You might think you should have your best life now because now is all you got. Well, guess what? One day when the morning star bursts into this dark world, it will be over. And that light, that radiant light of the glory of Jesus Christ will expose everything, not without only, but also within. 
It says in Romans 2 verse 16, on that day, it says, the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Do you have secrets? Are there things within your hearts that you're not proud of, things you have done, things you have looked upon, things you have entertained in your mind that you would not want to share with anybody because you're so ashamed of them? On that day, God's word will blaze it open and it will be seen and you will be seen for who you really are in and of yourself. A sinner. Deserving of nothing but hell. You see... Heaven and hell are absolutely real. You're going to one of the two places. Don't kid yourself. Don't believe what the world says when it says, oh, those are just figments of Christianity, made up stuff so they can scare people. Hell is real. I remember at 18 years old hearing the preacher say very soberly from the pulpit, hell is real. It gripped me. Has it gripped you? Only the righteous are saved. And the Bible is clear. There is none righteous. No, not one. So in and of ourselves, there's only one place where we are deservingly going to go. But God, it says in Romans 3, 4, 3, says he sent forth his son to be propitiation, which means the one who appeases the wrath of God on sin. Why? What was Jesus Christ? He was the righteous one. And this world took the just one, the righteous one, and placed him on a cross. And on that cross, Jesus Christ bore the sins of the world upon himself in such a way that if you, O oh unrighteous sinner, were turned to Jesus Christ, if you believe on him in an amazing turn of events, prophesied already from Genesis 3.15, God will place the righteousness of Jesus Christ on the sinner. It says by faith. That's it. By faith alone. Nothing to God you bring simply to Jesus Christ you must cling. So stop the excuses of your self-righteousness. Stop pretending that you can bring something to God on judgment day. You have nothing that you can bring to God but your sins. And they will find you out. But Christian, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, who will plead his wounds, his righteousness, his holiness for us. And we will go into eternity, not because we're so good, but because he paid it all. All to him we owe. So this morning I plead with you, heed, heed and listen what the word says, what Jesus said when he came the first time. He said this, I am come a light into this world and whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. And if any man hear my words, are you hearing it this morning? And believe not, I judge him not. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. His first coming was a coming to deliver to save us to draw people like you and me who would not be who had not been born yet and yet to save those who would come those who had lived and those who were living then Jesus came to save sinners the great lion of the tribe of Judah Jesus Christ was led as a lamb to the slaughter to take away our sins and he's calling you this morning in the bringing of the word he's urging you he's compelling you and he is commanding you in the word to come come to him by faith lay down your arms lay down yourself and bow the knee to king jesus you know every year on on our calendars we have this spot called christmas 
And growing up in our tradition, we would have Advent sermons. Advent, a time which we remember he has come. And the church looks to that and remembers his first coming. Guess what's markedly absent from the calendar? Second Advent. You won't find it. We're expecting it. And it will be the time when calendars will be no more. We will enter into the eternal forever. The eternal eternal Sabbath. Are you ready for that day? Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you and we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the day star. Oh Lord, may that day star shine the light of the glorious gospel into our hearts this morning or that we may be saved, trusting in him alone. We thank you that he came the first time, not to judge, but to save poor sinners so that when he comes the second time, we may stand before him. Oh God, draw us to you, we pray in Jesus' name.